Ah, here we go. Here we go. Disclaimer, yeah? That's right. Nine-inch preamble about adult themes with a disturbing nature with a helpline number at the end for anyone affected by the content and a two-litre bottle of Quattro. No. Yeah? No, that's not what I ordered. Look, I've got a nine-inch pre... Well, that's absolutely beautiful, it really is, but I ordered a disclaimer for alcohol consumption, bad language and minor factual discrepancies. That ain't what they gave me, mate. Evidently. Have they fucked it up again? Uh, looks like it. Twats. That's the kind of thing we're trying to cover, not emotional distress. Look, mate, do you want this, so... No, that's no good to us. And now we've got to open a show with no warnings. This... This is the Margaret Rutherford Misadventure Marathon. For the love of God. No. They've done it again, haven't they? Twats. But this is a bit... Whereas I wanted... No, 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 no. This is the late 1980s. I would say that had that been in our town... Yes. Me and you would have been there. Oh, without purely, purely yes, because yes. of her discotheque. That, exactly, that's the point. <laughs> they reckon that there's 21 prizes. I reckon there's about six. Yeah, they've got someone behind the board just switching the pictures around when the numbers. Absolutely, picked. gotta be. <laughs> I would pay my TV licence for a year to watch this on a loop constantly for 365 days. Exit, stage left. Are you all right? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. I'm Dr Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here, amongst other reasons, to gaze agog at gambling and gossip on the Gogglebox. Yes, hello to you, and thank you for dropping into our casual cultural critique of vintage television, where Britain's best-loved battle axe is never far from our minds, because here, all roads lead to the mountain. If you head over to PeggyMountPod.com, info for the episodes we're discussing is in the show notes. You can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or to ask why we haven't covered your favourite episode of Crown Court yet. It's in the next series, honestly. Before we stride cocksure into a bustling environment and give away the fact that we have no idea what we're talking about with the very first words we utter, Dr Velvet, I've got to ask, what are you drinking? Nice knockers, shame about the beer. Or however the advert went. Yes, I'm drinking McEwan's Best Scotch. The one you've got to come back for. Good lord! I, I needed that. I needed that taste of that era again. <laughs> and this, this, this watered down cold gravy yes. is exactly that. Yes, amazing. Yes. Mm. You? Uh, I've got a bottle of Oxford IPA by the Chadlington Brewery. Oh, aha! Uh-huh. That'll do. Sounds lovely. Sounds lovely. Sounds delightful. Right. Swiftly on to the first edition of tonight's viewing, and we delve deep into the seedy underbelly of the world of Fleet Street. But stop the press! It's not Fleet Street! All is not quite what it seems. The Press Gang was a light of touch drama serial about a kid's newspaper and the pupils and staff of the comprehensive school who run it. The show was devised by Bill Moffat, produced by Central Television and aired on Children's ITV from 1989 to 93 over five series and 43 episodes. 
Told from the point of view of the young reporters and admin staff, the ensemble cast proved a CV springboard for stars such as Julia Sawala, Lucy Benjamin, Lee Ross and Dexter Fletcher, juggling stories on relationships, responsibilities and investigative intrigue, as well as addressing more heavyweight issues for its audience. We've watched the very first episode, Page One, written by Stephen Moffat and directed by Colin Nutley, originally aired in January 1989, in which a team is assembled, a newspaper is founded, and a magnet for the cranks is switched to on. I've always said the theme tune to a show sets the tone. It does. This one more than most. Well, this is very... It's trying to be busy and exciting, but in a very skipping-round-the-playground type way. This deserved a theme tune similar to Drop the Dead Donkey. I would suggest. Something a little bit more busy and important. But this is a bit... Whereas I wanted... I want that. No, 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 no. This is the late 1980s. This is a juvenile British Miami Vice. What more do you want? This is Bugsy Malone with typewriters. Yes. That's what this is. Oh, you can see my notes from there. Right, OK. Right? Now, this being the case, um, did you watch this back in the day, by the way? I, I did, yeah. Mm. Oddly enough, I don't really remember that much about it. I remember the premise. I remember uh-huh. the broad character archetypes. I wasn't sort of surprised yeah. watching this again. Um, yeah, yeah. But, again, watching it now, I suspect I don't remember much because the whole thing is all over the place all of the time. So any actual storylines just get drowned out by the noise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And what a noise. Clicky-clack, <laughs> clicky-clack. Yes, yes. Echo, echoey office, echoey yep. office. I, I dipped into this now and again. I didn't, I didn't see this right from the start back in the day. Right. Um, but uh, I did dip in it, and I, but I do like the premise of it. Um, they're kind of school kids by day, journalists by night, kind of thing we have got going on mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. Jamie and the Magic Torch, isn't it? With Tipex. A, a very, a very nice analogy. I like this. Again, before we meet anyone, can we have a moment of appreciation? for the pan and crane shot which opens this episode. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's a full 20 seconds of beauty. All of the yeah. money went on this shot. It did? Amazing. To it the is. point where they could only afford one mic for the big hole that they were filming in, but that's fine. That's right. That, that's right. That's right. <laughs> the, the cathedral of a set. <laughs> um, yeah, the set for the offices of the Junior Gazette. That's right. It's um, So this sort of junior newspaper, it's been set up by... As a genuine business by a reputed publisher, and it also ends up being this dumping ground for problem kids and busybodies from the nearest comprehensive school. It's a penance for being a dick at school. Kinda, yeah. You've put the windows out in the science block. <laughs> Go and do the sports report. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what kind of quality they think they're going to get out of this newspaper by putting all the arseholes in the room there, but yeah, fine. Do you know what I mean? Imagine if that had happened at our school. God well, almighty. Well, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. It's like, yeah, come on, mate. So we've got Julia Sawala. We have. Uh, I think this is probably one of her earliest roles, but yeah. um, fortunately she's she's um, sharpening her acting skills, ready to play Safi in Ab Fab. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Because mm-hmm. I mean, that's who we've got here. This is This is Saffron Monsoon, the secondary years. Secondary school years, that's what this is. Yeah, it completely works, though. Um, Yeah, it does. A lot of the cast had done bits and bobs here and there before this, but this was Mm -hmm. the one where, you know, they cranked out 40-odd episodes of this, and this was like their calling card. You know, you're you're being seen every week at this point. You haven't just got a walking part in the bill, so that's fine. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see that the acting range of the cast, it goes the full gamut 
of, well, that one's clearly going to progress to better things, right down to, so wouldn't there a fire hazard? Yeah, you're right. We've got the full spectrum there. I would also go so far as to say that almost everyone over the age of 25 in this programme is shit. (laughs) (laughs) Not all of them. I'll I'll get to a couple couple of performances I very much admired in this. But, you Mm -hmm. know, you're like, I expect the kids to be bad actors, not the Mm grown-ups. No, 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 they're shite in this, really are. (laughs) But there we go. (laughs) Thankfully, we spend most of our time with the youth. We do, we do indeed. And we meet... Spike. We meet we meet a character called Spike, played by the Dexter Fletchers. Yes. Now, when I watched this back in the day, I thought he was genuinely American. Right, but, but nobody knows which part of the America he's from. Well, that's the thing. I'm watching it now, and I can see that he's doing what's known in the business as the reverse Van Dyke. Right. <laughs> it's absolutely appalling. But to me, as what a teenager, I'm just like, he's, he's, he's really cool, yes. Isn't he cool with the shades on? Uh-huh. And the, and the, the leather jerkin. Uh, the, and, the, and the leather jerkin, and in he strides. He's yep. the he's the he's the bad boy, and he's been assigned to work on this newspaper as penance. Yep. Um, he meets Linda, played by Judy Sawala. Do you think the Stephen Doctor Who Moffats, when he wrote this, do you think he'd just binge the box set of Moonlighting? Yes, I think I think he watched an episode, an episode of Moonlighting, before he picked up the pen to write every episode of this. Yeah. Yes. It's fine. I, I don't mind it at all. It's absolutely fine. But um, mm. it is very much on front street. Spike's pa- sort of general patter in this, it's fucking mm. relentless. I get eight minutes into the episode and I'm exhausted. It's relentless, which I could cope with if it was entertaining, but it isn't. <laughs> that said, I can't deny that the spark between Linda and Spike probably is the most interesting thing about this programme. Completely. The quips, yeah. actually, I must, I must give credit... The dialogue is decently loaded with quips to to quickly establish the important characters in this. Yes. They crackle along, Spike and Linda. So story-wise, this is character played by Roger Sloman. I mean, the man's in everything. The magnificent Roger Sloman. Use his name. Yep. Yes. Yep. So he's trying to uh, chat to somebody about this little conspiracy theory thing that he's got going on. Linda, Julius Weller character, um, she's teaching... Kids, the viewers, the first rule of junior tabloid journalism. Use cunning and deception to get your story. Mm-hmm. And she's going to get the top story, is Linda. She's going to get the top story with this guy. This this can't fail. The Roger Sloman character, whose name we don't learn yet, for it comes out later for comedy reasons, um, he's gone to like a grown-up newspaper. He's taken a story there. He's like, you're going to be interested in this. This is going to break the world when this cracks. You've got to run this story. And the woman who's running that newspaper, the magnificent Angela Bruce, by the way. The, these these two performances, Angela Bruce and Roger Sloman, 100% perfect. I love them in this. Yeah. They're amazing cast. Anyway, it's too bad the rest of everyone lets it down. I, di- I digress. Angela Bruce. Angela Bruce I like particularly because... Three reasons, OK? Mm-hmm. Number one, she played the first ever female brigadier in Doctor Who. Yep. Um, Winifred Bambera was her, Brigadier Winifred Bambera she played. I liked her in Red Dwarf. Yes. And she's she was born in Craghead in County Durham. There, there we go. go. There we go. Now, I do think that on a moral level, she's entirely justified in this. Agreed. Um, you know, it's cutthroat business, um, yeah. and you've got to learn this. Uh, speaking of cutthroat, to a place where you're likely to get your throat cut, I would have a membership to the joint discotheque. It, it, look, it looks nails, doesn't it? 
I thought that at that point in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, all, all mm. of these big halls were getting converted into into bingo halls. Yes, this yes, one looks like it's, This one looks like it's been a bingo hall, and all they've done is changed the sign above the door. Correct, correct. Can I just say, though, any place hoping to attract the youth who like the pop and the punk rock music mm. from mm. the world of pop and rock, yes. putting the word discotheque on the sign is guaranteed an empty dance floor in this era. They're not touching anything with the word discotheque on in this era. I would say that had that been in our town, yes, me and you would have been there. Oh, without we, purely, purely yes, because yes. of the word discotheque. That, exactly, that's the point. That's the point. <laughs> it, would have, it would have just been us shouting uh-huh. at the DJ to play the Sisters of Mercy again. To play the Sisters of Mercy and Boney M, or preferably <laughs> yes. at the same time. <laughs> play them in the discotheque. And that's the, that's the only reason we would have gone simply where are you going tonight on the discotheque. You have to that's... use the high pitched nasal tone to be heard over the music. You really do every time. So yeah. Never mind, they do say every day is a school day, and I've learnt that a KD is a knuckle-dragger. That was interesting. Yeah, that took a long time to come out, but, you know... Didn't it? It's only, like, a small note in the script, but they do keep dragging it back up again before we finally get that to yeah. pay off. You're like, what, she calls a lot of people this, does she? Mm. It's that much of a, a, a... It's so much of a cool term that she's got her own abbreviation for it, but also that no-one else knows what the hell she's talking about. OK. Yeah, yeah. There's some sense in there somewhere. Um, so anyway, the relevance of the joint disco tech. There's 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 rumblings. There's rumblings, and Spike thinks he's onto a story. He does. Um, he and he thinks, oh, actually, um, yeah, I'll I'll redeem myself here. Uh, they think I'm no good at that place. They think I'm gonna just fail. Mm-hmm. And um, no, is his journalistic radar is is spinning away. Yep. Um, so we we reach a point where Linda has a story and Spike has a story. Well. Spike is standing over the road from the discotheque with, yes. da- with Danny, who's taking photos with a camera. That's right. The pair of them could not be more suspicious if they were wearing trench coats and trilbies. A la Michael Crawford in Condor Man. Yes. And in the end, yeah. the, uh, the well, basically the owner of the discotheque, he's shown some people uh, the discotheque. He's shown them the outside of the discotheque, and he's taken Correct. about six minutes to do it. So in the end, he sees them off, and he's like, are, th- are, these, are these two people going to buy the discotheque? I don't know. I, th- I think they might buy the discotheque. We should go and... Oh, sorry, I'll, I've got to do Spike's voice. I think we should go over and ask the man if he's going to sell the discotheque. Do you think we should really do it? Yes, we should go over. This is this is like a sample of the dialogue. It, and they go over, and the man says, no, I'm not. And the segment ends there. Well, and Spike realises uh, whenever anyone says they're not, it means they are. Yeah, oh? I'm not entirely sure where this... I, just, I hope this storyline gets picked up because it's not doing a lot in this episode, but fine. It really know. isn't. Other it than, really isn't. Other than a bingo hall is going to be sold to someone else. I don't see how that's something that the Junior Gazette is going to be interested in because, as you pointed out, no one is going to this discotheque. Yep, at all. We do learn, though, however, that Matt, who is the, the, the adult editor... Um, I think he's the guy who's financing the Junior Gazette, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he has a beautiful cowboy boot... He does, yes. Yeah. A tanned cowboy boot. That's right. It's beautiful. It really was. Spike, he he undercuts Linda. Linda's story turns out to be utter pig shit. Um, Roger Sloman's character is just a a crank. Oh, yeah. uh, The the build-up for this is so drawn out. I had to go and have a shave at one point. Right. He's there and he's like, I'm going to blow the lid on something big. You you need to this this is an important thing, and it, it's available to kids. And of course, 
Linda, she's like, well, what is it? What is it? I've, I've got it in the bag. And it, it takes about... The episode's 25 minutes long. This takes about three quarters of an hour before he finally yep. comes back in with a hole doll. And let's have a listen to what he's got in it. Can you believe? Can you even begin to believe? That on open sale in toy shops everywhere in the country, perhaps everywhere in the world. And he opens the bag, and out comes a Palatoy slash Kenner Millennium Falcon. I thought that you would go through your chair at this point. Well, he's, the, running, the, the long, long, long running joke seems to be that this crank thinks that the Star Wars toys have something to do with the Star Wars defence system, which yep. was named after the film Star Wars. That's right. And I'm like, well, it, it, it's more... what. Well, really boiled my piss was the fact that he says they're on open sale in toy shops all over the country mate it's 1989 fucking nowhere is selling the Millennium Falcon anymore it's in remarkably good nick for a loose ship which has been knocking around in his hold all for five years since anyone last gave a fuck about it mate that was box fresh wasn't it <laughs> I say this as a lifelong Star Wars fan even I didn't care about it in 1989 the saga was finished right. mate <laughs> yeah did you catch his name the character's name yeah, let's have a listen. Great. If you could uh, just wait over there, we'll, we'll be with you in a moment. Uh, Mr. Uh... Vader. Tumbleweed.gif. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to admit, it wraps up, the episode wraps up, and I thought it was a bit wet. I would have preferred Spike to be a little bit more ruthless in his arrogance. But, you know, after all the little sparks that were going off, it's as if they skipped off together hand in hand into the distance. It was too amicable. I wanted that it be door slamming. You know, you know what? You've got to do the will they won't. It's the first episode. I suppose we've, but, already, yeah. we've already seen the they won't. So this is the they might. So they, they might. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't mind that because you know for a fact that next week they're going to be hot cold, hot cold again. On a side note, mm. they're meant to be pupils in comprehensive, right? Yep. Julia Sawala was twenty when she filmed this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dexter Fletcher was twenty-two. Yeah. This is almost as bad as the casting for Greece. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. That's been said. Um, how many pegs are you going to stick on Spike's typewriter? Well, Press Gang feels like it's been written in the buzz of some chemically fueled excitement in the early hours of the morning, but then no one's given it the 24 hour test before handing it to the cast. The show spends its very first 25 minutes tripping over itself with a cast who act like an improv group still trying to work out the situation, never mind the characters. But it's a first episode, much promise, six out of nine. Yeah, I'm with you all the way. I too give it a six. In this we have intrigue, we have investigation, we have a little bit of aspiration. We have teen romance. This Mm -hmm. should be all the ingredients needed to produce uh, a right tasty after-school delight, but it's a little uptight and it's a little chaotic. For now. This is series one, episode one. Exactly, exactly. Um, The acting isn't great, but it isn't as bad as Grange Hill. So, yeah, six out of nine. But the question on every Fleet Street hack's lips as they beaver away with their latest scoop, is... Blackout. How many unbearable clacks on the typewriter will it take you to yodel up the mountain? I can do it in three. Part of the press gang here was the young Paul Reynolds, who starred in the 1991 neo-noir masterpiece Let Him Have That, along with Tom Courtney, who was in that Dr Zhivago film next to... Jeffrey Keane, who showed his face in 1956's Sailor Beware with Peggy Mount. Well, what about me? Superb, superb. Very good, very good. Oh, what about you? How many front page scoops can you do it in? 
Well, I can do it in two. The Press Gang features the masterful Roger Sloman, who rolled up in a couple of episodes of Bottom in the company of Rick Mail, who laid down some voice tracks for 1991's The Princess and the Goblin with... Thank you for reminding me I'd have been searching with myself all day. Marvellous. Marvellous. So that's that out of the way. Time now, of course, for the competition question. And here it is. So the character of Spike was played by Dexter Fletcher, who went on to great things as a film director. He has recently been reported to be developing a new live-action film version of popular TV cartoon Willow the Wisp. Starring Leo Sayer and Gemma Collins. True or false? There you go. That's your question. And remember, Blackout, you can't enter. That's all right. I don't know this one. That's fine. That's fine. I wouldn't even guess. Right. While I blot out our mistakes from the last few minutes with a big bottle of Tipex, let's watch some things. Speed gear, brand new saddle design, and look at those chunky tyres. I'm the Rally Striker, and my name's the Rally Boxer. See these great new British bikes from Rally. They're fantastic. Kaplunk and Brockaroo, two games of suspense from Ideal. Now you need patience to play Kaplunk. You just pull out the sticks without letting any marbles fall. Because when they do... Now, Buckaroo! You take turns putting boots and buckets and just about everything you can get your hands on on Buckaroo. But carefully does it, because you never know when he's going to... Buckaroo, partner! Kaplunk and Buckaroo, they're both ideal. The beautiful things on spec as always. Love it, love it. All of the things. All of all them. of the things. Unlike this, which keeps going on, all of the rings. How we? You know, we're far enough into the series now. Hi, Melly here. I got this number from Mick at the Buffs. He told me you were the guys responsible for going on and on and on and on and on and on and on about the old telly and that. Now a little bird, little jazz bird, told me that Lane's been on the blower to you. I don't know what she said, but I'll tell you for nothing that she's full of shit and that story with a knitting needle's not true. If anything, the flaps were fine and it scorched the nuts. Hot nuts! Again from the peanut man. Gotta go now. I've got a race on at Gateshead Indoor Dog Track. But how about you cover my show gallery? Hmm? There's full episodes on Jazz Tube, I believe. No, wait. Not Jazz Tube. That's a poor... 
Yep, well, we've learned to just brush over these now. Let's just move on, shall we? If it's any consolation, listener, this happens when we're not recording as well. This is all the time. All of the time. Anyway, on to the second of tonight's offerings. And we have a regional treasure hosted by a national treasure that few remember, but many adored. Listener, I present a legend. Gambit was the card-based quiz show from Anglia Television, ported over from a US product of the same name, hosted on ITV by Sir Fred Dynage, assisted by Michelle Lambourne, voiceovered by John Benson, and accompanied by Peter Fenn and his massive organ. It ran from 1975 to 85, over 11 series and 141 episodes. In its later days, front duties were taken over by Thomas O'Connor. Based around the casino game of Blackjack, two teams of couples have to answer questions correctly to be dealt a card, hoping to subsequently accrue enough to get a count of 21, or as close as, while sticking, twisting, or even passing the card to their opponents as they go. They're rewarded in this endeavour with cash and prizes. We've watched the first episode of the 1982 run, originally aired on Monday the 5th of April of that year, at quarter past five in the afternoon. Don't be fooled by the start time, there's going to be fucking hell on in this casino. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, your host, Fred Dynage. The theme tune is Titanic. Isn't it? This is absolutely incredible. Isn't this. it? As in, I hear that, and I would punch a hole in the side of a ship out of joy. It's in my top ten, this, <laughs> of all time. Absolutely fantastic, this. I mean, I prefer just the PFN version rather than, like, the full big band one that we get, but, yeah, that's fine, you know. The big band one was good enough. Until this episode, I hadn't heard the Peter Fenn one. Right. And while that was playing, I knocked the TV volume up to 28. <laughs> that was glorious. No. Now, back in the day, yeah, yes, did you watch it? Because I don't have a lot of memories of this. I remember it being a thing, but I don't yeah. recall ever watching it. Same. Because it felt like card games were a grown-ups thing. Yeah. Despite the fact that I used to play pontoon, i.e. blackjack, with my grandparents for coppers from a very early age. <laughs> right. You know? right, what, right. What the fuck is a programme based around gambling doing on at quarter past five? Yeah. This is 1982. Yeah. There should be kids' programmes on. What are you doing, man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, and of course, this is pre-blockbusters, isn't it? You know, we didn't have blockbusters for another year or a year and a half. So, this, so is, yeah. this is the thing, right? With the exception of Dinage's suit, all of Gambit is like this perfect snapshot of the mid-1970s. God, yes. From the the titles, which are like mm-hmm. Tales of the Unexpected with a Vegas residency, um, right up until the... Yeah, you remember this was filmed in 1981. Now, yeah. Odd, Odd One Out, which was basically the first half of the 1980s compressed into Studio 3 and filmed through Paul Daniels, Odd One Out started 11 days after this episode of Gambit went out. Uh-huh which makes Gambit look like a fucking museum exhibit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't even finished yet. It still had years to run. <laughs> right. But it, but it's 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 winning hands down in terms of format. It is. It is. I mean, here we go. It's Dynage, the regional TV overlord himself. Yep. Yes, yes. This The man is a god, man. He is absolutely fucking superb in this. Isn't he? Um, apart from one area, which we will cover as it unfolds, um, he's professional, he's polite, mm-hmm. he's authoritative, 
but he's informal. And full of charm. And also gives a beautiful side eye to the viewer every now and again. Well, again, yes, we'll we'll get to this, yes. <laughs> Why, um, he introduces Michelle Lamborn, who's basically effectively the dealer. She gets credited at the end as the dealer. That's nice. Well, you mean the thinking man's Muppet? Why does he describe Michelle as the thinking man's Muppet? What the fuck, Fred? Uh, d- yeah, I, I, I was re- genuinely shocked by that. Do you think that's an in-joke? I think there's some sort of friction between them. We'll get onto it. There's more on this. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, um, okay. I do like that the whole thing looks like it's been made for about 20 quid. Yes. And that all of the audience have been lured in with the promise of a cup of tea and a custard cream. Well, a little bit more, I think, probably in a bag. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is literally like walking into... All right, you're walking on Blackpool Pleasure Beach yeah. up, up, the, up the Golden Mile and you hear some music play and you take a little right and you go into the amusement arcade and lo, there's this big seated area. You go up there and there's a guy on the stage doing a quiz show and it's literally that. There's not a single contestant that is under 40 and they are the youngest people in the room. I, I did a quick calculation. The collective age of the audience is 25,918 years old. <laughs> nice. On to the contestants, and it's Mr and Mrs Gallagher. Now, I noticed this, yeah, it's Mr and Mrs at the start, and then it's yeah. Fred It's Fred that drops in the surnames. It's like, come on, Michelle, it's, let's not be too formal here. I'm, I'm, That's right. That's I'm right. running a casual ship. Mr Gallagher is a welder. He is. <laughs> He's fucking amazing. He's, he's, he's taking no nonsense, is he? He's not. Mr Gallagher. Sally Gallagher, she sings. And she, and she is made to sing. One fine day we'll notice. Fine, don't call us. He did, quite sort of light-hearted. He sort of tells her that she's shit. And yep. then just goes, I'm already joking. You're not really shit, but we'll never mention this again. In fact, he's in a hurry to get across to Mr and Mrs Cox. And Mr Cox, he sells bread. Uh-huh. And Mrs Cox is a QA operator. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I've, I've worked in quality assurance, and even I don't know what the fuck that is. Boom, there we go, the game starts. And let me... It's fast-moving, this. It is. I love the tension. Let's dance. Let's dance and let's rock, because it's off. Now, because we've got, like, big cards, it's a very visual game. It's very intuitive, because, yep. you know, most people know how Blackjack, Pontoon, 21s how all of that works. The questions, there's a nice range of general knowledge um, and the ability to throw cards that you don't want onto your opponent's score is fucking genius. Beautiful. Now, as I say, they're using these massive cards, a bit like on play your cards, right? They're not quite that big, but, you know, they're like big so the audience mm-hmm. can see them. Mm-hmm. As you know, play your cards, right, is riggable as absolute fuck. Indeed. But what's great about Gambit is both teams are always in play. So even if the order of the cards is pre-sorted, because of course it fucking is, the production team still have no way of knowing which couple will be picking them out for their score. That's right, because they don't know who's going to get that yes. question right. It's, yes, this game is fucking outstanding. There are some great moments in this gameplay. The Gallaghers are storming. Dennis Gallagher is a fucking fact machine. It's like he invented Isn't Wikipedia. He? His hair is 90% brill cream, and his glasses <laughs> can see into the future to read Fred Dynage telling that all his answers are right. That's right. And then he goes bust. So they lose him to the Coxes. <laughs> what, he explodes? Outstanding gameplay. You can get knocked yeah. out by fucking bad luck alone. I love this. So the Coxes, because they win, they get to play on the Gambit board. The Gambit board. 
and the and the organ music that accompanies um, John Benson's description of the prizes is superb. It is it absolutely is. superb, as as always with every production that Anglia pumps out. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. And to begin this new series, how about this beautiful forty-four piece canteen of cutlery, or these matching ladies and gents gold-plated quartz watches? Prizes, yeah, the average for the time. Who doesn't want a pigskin briefcase? Let me tell you. You got like a range of twenty-one boxes on the board, right? And you pick a number, and they show you. They give you the prize, but then you're like, turn. There's no questions in this bit. Then like you turn over, you get the card, and you're effectively playing blackjack. But you, you know, you may well win the prize that you've. Uh, so you may well lose the prize that you've just won. Again, it's mm-hmm. fucking genius. They reckon that there's 21 prizes. I reckon there's about six. Yeah, they've got someone behind the board just switching the pictures around when a number's absolutely. Picked. Gotta be. <laughs> so we've got a canteen of cutlery, ladies and gents. Gold-plated watches. I noticed they've got leather straps, so it's not like they there's have. that much gold plating on them. Fine. Nope. A microwave oven. This useful picnic hamper. Those are those words. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and a choice of star prizes. Now, we've got two star prizes here. You get to take your pick. Mm-hmm. You've got a 1981 Mini. Um, Maybe, and John, isn't it? Well... John Benson, he describes the car thoroughly as if he's reading out his press release, and yet he doesn't say the word Mini. Why? It's not like he's not allowed to. It's there. It's on the turntable. It's in the studio, mate. It's not like he didn't know what car it was. He's not reading out a general description of a car. He's saying, oh, it's an absolute style trailblazer, da-da-da-da-da, this year's model. I mean, it, you know, it could have been a Nissan Micro, but I doubt it. Um, mm-hmm. Alternatively, a Fortnite in Mauritius. This isn't bad for Anglia. It's cracking. They would have been expensive prizes for Anglia. Yeah, yeah. M- Mauritius in 81? Yeah. Howie, that would be like going to the moon, man. <laughs> so first off, the Coxes get a long weekend in Gibraltar. They really do. Boom, and that's it. They yeah. Flip their card, they've got a two. That's a decent start, because you've got plenty more cars to pick after that. They've, For now, that long weekend, that's in the bag. They've got that. They have. They make out like the bandits. They really do. Yeah. Next up, Boom. A brown pigskin executive briefcase. There we are. Their words, not mine. Mm-hmm. Is there not a better name for something which sounds like it's going to smell of sweaty asses on a hot day? Yes. Yes. Right? <laughs> hey! Yeah. Now, first bit of beef here. It's time for the card to come out. Mm-hmm. Michelle, she knows what the card is. She's looked, right? Just mm-hmm. like at the top of the pile. She pulls mm-hmm. them out, this king, and she goes, she nods, saying, this is a good one. And then Fred puts in with, Actually, it's quite a difficult one. Okay, Fred, mm-hmm. what's Michelle done to upset you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, what's, mm-hmm. what's going on here? This this is where it starts, apart from like the Muppet comment earlier. There's a nice touch here, though, at the very end, when they when they do crash and burn. So Fred invents what they do now on ITV's Tipping Point. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the game, he basically says, all right, let's, let's take this card out and see if you would have won. Yeah, yeah, I like this. He does make it sound like he's kind of breaking the rules. He's sort of saying to the audience, "Do you want to? Do you want to see?" He's basically trying to wait the audience up, some like someone's yeah. poking them with a fucking broom handle. That's he's right. like, do, "Do you want to see what it would have been?" Like he's just invented the idea, and I'm thinking, "Has he not done this on the previous fucking six series once?" Seriously, he uses the very words. Well, now we're not supposed to do this, but and you just think, "Oh, Dinage, you're on the edge. You're edgy. Yeah, you're edgy. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's looking at a tribunal." <laughs> Well, yeah. It's like a quiz being hosted by Avon from Blake 7. You never know quite where this is going to go. I like it. I like it. 
Never mind. The game moves on. The game moves on. And we get some new contestants to go up against the Coxes. Yes. It's another couple, uh, obviously. And Dennis looks like he doesn't want to be there. <laughs> Dennis and Sue Hurley. He's an electrician. She's a civil servant. And they're from uh, Upton St. Leonard's. So that's fine. Yeah, that's like two mm-hmm. very upstanding jobs there. Um, bit of banter from Dynage. Which yep. branch of the civil service do you work in? Are you in tax? No, right, you can stay. <laughs> Fred Dynes is a tax criminal. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but again, right, here we go. Next point. Michelle Lamborn reads their names and occupations out off a card. Mm-hmm. And Fred gives this really enthusiastic, well done. Yeah. Like, like she's in the fucking remedial class or something. Bear in mind, Michelle Lamborn has been doing this job with Fred Dynage since 1976. Uh-huh. She's not the fucking work experience kid, Fred. What is your beef? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. It really has... Something has gone down. Oh, it, it, this is the tension I'm living for at, at the minute. I'm, I'm fine with this. Tension was relieved for me with the musical round. Because yes. let me tell you that Peter Fenn uh-huh. playing Bring Me Sunshine was one of the best moments of television I have ever seen in my 49 years on this planet. Yep. This was exceptional, this. <laughs> it fucking is. There's no buzzing in. It's just you're gonna to listen to him playing the fucking lot. Then we're gonna ask you questions. Just you, you, you four contestants, sit the fuck down, shut the yep. fuck up, and listen to the yep. Fed. would pay my TV licence for a year to watch this on a loop constantly for 365 days. That was amazing, that. Yes. But yes, um, the game rumbles on and the Hurleys, Dennis and his and his lovely wife, um, I mean, Fred is, is essentially mocking them for being thick. In literature, how many Arabian Nights were there? Seven. No. Forty. No, a thousand and one. You're worse than Michelle Lamborn. It is going to kick the fuck off in here, mind. It is. I'm on Team it Lamborn. Is. I'm, I'm Team Dynage, like, sorry. Do you reckon? And yet then, straight away, Michelle comes in with this. Michelle, have you got any ideas, Lupine? You really silly Lupines ought to grow in my mum's front garden. <laughs> and like that, I'm back on Team Dynage. Fucking straight away. What the fuck is that? Well, that was pure partridge. Fred just looks into the camera for about half a beat too long with a stare which says it's like this all fucking day every fucking day mind then he just moves on as if he doesn't detest his own assistant that stare (laughs) into camera was a cry for help let me tell you you know what there are a lot of wrong answers in this half of the show to be fair and yeah this clip it's the right answer I'm having so much trouble with this slot here tonight it's unbelievable that is 100% pure fucking partridge yeah. He is fuming at his perception of everybody in the room letting him down. It's glorious. Yep. yep. <laughs> Absolutely superb. <gasps> you don't get this on sale of the century. Anyway, the the Coxes, the Coxes, um, they reign supreme. Off they go. Back to um, our Gambit boards. By this point, it's basically just Fred Dynage shouting at everybody in the room who dares to make eye contact with him. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> You'd think that they could be calmed down with the prospect of winning a floor polisher. Mind you, the house is wall-to-wall carpet, so there's going to be absolutely no fucking use to anybody in that house. <laughs> you know what? Maureen picks a number. She gets 
this easy-to-use floor polisher. They've got to tell her that it's easy to use, and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. let's let's file that one. What does Tony win? A dartboard and two sets of darts. Yep. We're just full-on into the fucking patriarchy now, aren't we? Aren't we? <laughs> and then, Maureen's next goal, she gets the cutlery canteen. Yes. Bear in mind, all of the prizes they've won are the ones that were described earlier. Like I said, there's not 21 fucking prizes, is there fuck? That's right. Um, a cutlery canteen, and I caught, in a mahogany box, worth £390. Now, yes, I'm not going to do the quiz thing here, but £390 in 1981, when this will have been filmed, that's the equivalent of 1200 quid now. Yes. That's £27 a spoon. What's this cutlery they- made of? Adamantium. <laughs> hey, Wolverine's forks. They are oh, fucking hell. They <laughs> have nicked these from Bookhouse. <laughs> Someone's done a runner. God. There is something very, very wrong here. Oh, dear lord, dear lord. Anyway, they pull a king. They're busts, and they lose. They're bust. They lose this half's prizes. They get to keep the prizes from the first half. Plus four hundred and eighty quid. That's not bad. Off the uh, off they go. Off they pop. And Fred signs off. I'm telling you now. That was a roller coaster ride, that. Oh, it was, it was, it was. That was utterly glorious television. How many pegs would you clip mm. to a giant playing card while making fun of a woman who's paid to be there? This will come as not a surprise. Um, if I was picking a card and if it was the clubs, the spades, the hearts or the diamonds, it'd better be nine, because that's how many pegs are going on there. <laughs> fair play to you, fair play. This is absolutely beautiful. What about your good self? Um, Gambit is far better than it has any right to be. Eight out of nine. I love the tension. There's a bit of danger which I can't quite get down with. <laughs> but it's a very strong eight. That danger is the addiction. <laughs> that danger is Michelle Lambourne pulling out a sharpened screwdriver and just going after fucking Fred Dynage. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? For all of it, it's, it's cosy. It, there's a cosy element to it, but it's tense. It's familiar. This is perfect tea time quiz telly, and most importantly, dinage. There you go. But the question, mm-hmm. the, the question written inside a note, tucked inside a, a pigskin executive, a brown pigskin executive briefcase, is um, how many steps would it take you to run up the mountain and belt someone who was taking the piss out of you on national television? Specifically, does the pigskin briefcase smell of swill? Yes. I'll do it in three, then. Gambit is hosted by the inimitable Frederick Diniage, who rocked up in a 1982 edition of The Goodies, next to Tim Brooke Taylor, who appeared in a handful of episodes of Heartbeats, alongside... Derek Folds, who was in 1966's Hotel Paradiso with Peggy Moe! Hurrah, catch the 10.30. Beautiful, beautiful full yeah, marks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not bad, not bad at all. You're good self, sir. I'm doing so. Gambit is fronted by the formidable Frederico Dynastiban, who trod the boards in a 1983 episode of The Entertainers alongside Harry Fielder, who snuck in an appearance in Oliver with Peggy Mount. Oh, get out of this! Very good, very good indeed. Smashing. We got there. I know, we got right? There. We did it. We did indeed. Oh, right, okay. 
Competition time, of course. The tension is mounting. Here is your competition question. As we mentioned, the Coxes went bust over a king. Yes, a king playing card was drawn out, which caused them to lose the game. But from which suit was the king on that playing card? There you go. There you tension, go. Tension, tension, tension. Tension. Oh, let me tell you. Yep. Right, there we have it. I'm just off to do some further research into my Betty Driver cosplay for next year's CoryCon. In the meantime, Blackout's got your socials. Yes, thank you once again for being with us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyMountPod at gmail.com or we are PeggyMountPod on Twitter, on Facebook and on the Instagram. Follow us there, it's great. Five-star ratings are always welcome, of course, on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to us. Don't forget to go to PeggyMountPod.com to check out the show notes for this and for all of our other episodes, including the ones that aren't on the main feed. I'll just say that. It's as simple as that. It really is. We're away now because, of course, we've got Laron, but we'll be back next week with more of the same, only different. Until then, keep mountain! The Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from iCall Media, which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments from television programs are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com. I love a camera, you love a camera, we all love a camera now. <laughs> Those are the lyrics. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>